Please turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, just for a, our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we have been hunkering down on a passage in Scripture in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, and getting into the context pretty intensely in the midweeks. But today I want to speak on a subject. This is still fanning out the divine missions in one sense, but I want to speak on the subject of apocalypse and justice. Apocalypse and justice. And I want to begin with that just for a couple of text verses. First Corinthians 2, 2. As for me, Paul writes, when I came to you, siblings, I came not as a superior person with a brilliant message proclaiming to you evidence for the existence of God. Please note that little change up in translation. He didn't come as many of the Jewish teachers of his time and some of the sophists of the Greek bent to present fancy evidence for the evidence of for the existence of God. Rather, he says in verse two, for while I was with you, I had decided to be concerned about nothing except Jesus Christ and him having been nailed to the cross. Having been nailed to the cross, of course, presumes or presupposes his incarnation, which in turn presupposes his eternal preexistence as divine and as equal with the Father and the Spirit. And that also presupposes a life that he lived in the days of his flesh, which was one of vicarious obedience, the response of, that would be expected from humanity by God was fulfilled by Jesus Christ for us. And his crucifixion is the culmination of that obedience, by which obedience all are justified, even as by the disobedience of the one man, all were condemned. And that also assumes, because this is after the fact, his resurrection from the dead. His bodily glorious resurrection, his elevation 40 days later to the right hand of the Father, and his present enthronement. And we've been focusing on the fact, really, on the vision of an enthroned Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So from 1 Corinthians 2 2, we fly to 1 Corinthians 5 7b where Paul speaks of Christ crucified in the metaphorical way of the Paschal Lamb having been killed, the Paschal Passover Lamb having been slaughtered. This is what John does in Revelation. The whole center of Revelation is the enthroned Lamb. I saw a Lamb that had been slaughtered and yet standing. Standing means raised. He's ready to take the steps to the throne and be enthroned with the Father. And so that's what Revelation is all about, an enthroned lamb. And if we understand John's gospel, we understand that that lamb is the one who has taken away the sin of the world, the sin, singular, of the world, that which was terribly wrong in all the universe and in all humanity was removed and taken away. That's the divine solution. It is precisely this crucified Christ, the slaughtered Paschal Lamb, who now must reign until all of his enemies are placed under his feet. For our Paschal Lamb, Ta Pascha Hemon, our Paschal Lamb has been slaughtered. That is Christ, 1 Corinthians 5, 7b. Once again, it is precisely this crucified Christ, this slaughtered Paschal Lamb, who now must reign until all of his enemies are placed under his nail-scarred feet. That's 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-five, and that's where we are in our study at the present time. But though he was crucified in weakness, 2 Corinthians thirteen four a says, though he was crucified in weakness, Yet he lives now by the power of God. Not only that, the power of God is God's omnipotent love 
and his all-powerful grace. For as Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 13, 4b, and we are also weak in him. Yet toward you, Paul said, we live with him from God's power. Though we live in weakness, Paul speaks as an apostle, but also just as a Christian. Though we are weak in him, we live by the power of God. Living in him, we live by the power of God toward one another. That power toward one another is love. We serve one another by love. That love is an omnipotent power. It serves. It builds up. It doesn't tear down. It strengthens. It sacrifices itself. It doesn't try to promote itself. It's there to manifest Christ. The secret of ministry right there, incidentally, the secret of ministry is right there. We also are weak in him. And yet we live by the power of God. In our weakness, his power is ignited and perfected. In some mustard seed, but meaningful form, we can live in Christ by the power of God toward one another in this life. And yet it's in a mustard seed form. The mustard seed will not be branched out into the largest of trees until we're glorified, until we have our resurrection body, which is a glorious body like his. But even now, in some mustard seed but meaningful form, we can live in Christ by the power of God toward one another, to edification and not to tearing down, to encouragement and not discouragement. In other words, to love. Because love is the power of God through us, toward you in Christ. Toward the Corinthians, Paul and Timothy, who co-authored 2 Corinthians 1.1, lived with Christ from God's power. And this power of all-embracing love and omnipotent grace was toward the Corinthian saints and to us today through Paul, who had originally and then continually appeared to them in weakness. And yet the message that he, along with Timothy, the brother he called him, communicated was, as 1 Thessalonians 1.5 says, with power in the Holy Spirit and with much assurance. That didn't mean just that Paul was assured of his message, as were Sosthenes and Silvanus, and Timothy, and others who accompanied Paul. That didn't mean just that they were assured of their message, but that their message conveyed assurance to the listeners in the power of God, in the Holy Spirit. In other words, the gospel is exerted as an omnipotent influence for our benefit. Every time the gospel is preached, the event of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection is repeated in one sense before us. His enthronement repeated before us. And so the enthroned and reigning lamb is the subject of John's apocalypse, which we spent no little time in in years past. The term apocalyptic, now listen carefully because this is extremely important. Our whole idea here in Paul is that all of his epistles, and we're going to hit the pastorals separately, all of his epistles serve to be an apocalyptic vision. They are an apocalypse, just like Revelation is an apocalypse, because the enthroned and reigning lamb is the subject. The term apocalypse or apocalyptic has very little to do with catastrophe as it's understood today. It has very much to do with an act of divine deliverance 
that comes from outside the sphere of the command and control of human beings. I want to say that again. Apocalypse has very much to do with an act of divine deliverance, Trinitarian deliverance. It comes from outside the sphere of the command and control of human beings and of creation in general. It's a solution that comes from outside creation in general. It invades creation in general. The word became flesh. It has to do with an act of deliverance of humankind from powers beyond humanity's control. Once again, it has to do with an act of deliverance of humankind from powers beyond humanity's control or command. We have no command or control over death. We have no command or control over sin, though some pious Christians think they do, but not without the Spirit and the Word and the cross. The need for justice in such a divine deliverance is the need to set things right, not to damn half of humanity. The need for justice in such a divine deliverance is the need to set, or we could say rectify, or we could say justify if we qualify the meaning of that term. Once again, the need for justice in such a divine deliverance is the need to set things right. Set that which has universally gone wrong, gone terribly wrong in creation. Justice, when it comes to God, is his setting right of the universal situation that has gone very wrong. This act of setting things right is called justification or perhaps better, rectification, setting right. God's justice justifies. God's justice justifies. God's God's justifies the ungodly, and that's part of the offense of the gospel. God justifies the ungodly. He sets right the ungodly. Who else can he set right? People who aren't sinners? I didn't come to call the righteous, Jesus said, but sinners to repentance. Sinners, sinners to a change of thinking. Sinners to be transformed. The need for justice, then, is the need to set things right that have gone terribly wrong. So if you think of justice not as a damning thing from God, but as a setting of things right, which ultimately means the justification of the ungodly, you begin to understand the gospel and you begin to understand what apocalypse is and what justice is in connection with apocalypse. So if you were to ask me how long it took to prepare this message, I would say 45 years, because these are the things that are beginning to distill after that many years of study of the scriptures. God's justice justifies. That's what he does. Romans 4, 5. As the commercial says, I think it's Geico. It's what you do. If you're God, it's what you do. What God does is justify. Who is he that can lay any charge to the elect? It is God who justifies. God can't lay a charge because all God does is justify. Who does he justify? Romans 4, 5, the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. He doesn't condone or justify the actions of the ungodly. We know that that's not the case. God is in the business of justifying the ungodly just as much as he's in the business of calling things into existence that didn't exist before. That's God's thing. He can do that. God can do that. It's called ex nihilo, creating out of nothing. He called things into existence 
that did not exist. And he also is in the business of raising the dead. That's his thing. That's what he does. If you're God, it's what you do. Romans 4.17, which in connection with Romans 4.25 and 5.18 tells quite the story. Again, Romans 4.17, God who calls things into existence that did not exist and who raises the dead, raised Jesus Christ from the dead, and when he did so, it was for our justification. Who's our justification? Humanity's justification, if you take seriously what he says in Romans 5.18. That's quite a story if you want to follow that storyline. Might even call it a Romans road. Romans 4.17, 4.25, and 5.18. So there is nothing that is wrong right now. Even terribly. Even if that which is wrong is terribly wrong. Atrociously wrong. There is nothing that is wrong even if terribly and atrociously wrong, that God will not eventually set right. He who created all things in Christ, and that's how the Bible begins in the Septuagint, N-R-K, in Christ, because R-K is Christ in Colossians 1, 15 to 18. Christ is the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which means in Christ God brought into existence things that had not existed before. Genesis 1.1, Colossians 1.15-16, John 1.3. He who created all things in Christ, nothing came into being that did not come into being without, with, without Christ, without the word, without the eternal word, which became flesh. So he who created all things in Christ will certainly rectify all things in Christ. As Ephesians 1.10 says, recapitulate everything in him. That's another word that will be coming up again and again. We're talking about the scriptures here. We're not talking about Christian tradition that has violated the gospel all to hell and back. I'm talking about the gospel here. I'm not talking about human tradition that has invalidated the gospel for centuries, I'm talking about the gospel of God, the good news of God in Jesus Christ about an act of divine deliverance, an act of justice, if you will, by which God sets right everything in the universe that's gone wrong, and that includes everything in humanity that's gone terribly wrong. And if you don't think something's gone terribly wrong with humanity, watch the news for a half an hour. So. Once in a while, you just have to reply against the smugness of pseudo-piety, the arrogance of human tradition that vaunts itself and elevates itself against the true knowledge of God. And the weapons of our warfare are mighty through God to the pulling down of such smug and arrogant, high-thinking, high-pseudo-pious thoughts. That's what's sent a generation of so-called millennials away from church. That pseudo-pious bullshit. It's a tidal wave of it. Now, I didn't want to intend to do that today. And don't be shocked. Because it's in the Bible. Scubula. It's all kind of that. Not just bull. You see, I got a, my, the bat I swing is not hickory, it's maple. They're more expensive. That's what the baseball players who really want to hit home runs with. Once in a while, I have to bat a thought out of the air. And it's for your sake. I'm doing it for you. Because if those kind of thoughts prevail, then it puts us right back into the Stone Age, theologically speaking. All right. I hope you understand that. There is nothing that is wrong right now. 
even if it's atrociously wrong, that God will not eventually set things right. And in one very real sense, he has done so. Or at least he has dealt the blow when his son said, Tetelestai, it is finished. And when the enthroned one said, look, I've made all things new, it's done. I have made all things, I'm making all things new, but it's done. You compare John 19.30 with Revelation 21.5 and 6. And then Psalm 22.32, you'll understand what he's saying. The function of his justice may properly be called setting right what went wrong. That's justice. We think of justice and God's judgment. We think of damnation. We think of retribution. We think of God getting hold of people and hanging them over the fire like Jonathan Edwards, the pseudo-revivalist taught. In that message, at least, he was a pseudo-revivalist. If a message has the effect of having people hold onto the pews because they think they're going to slip into hell, that's not God's message. And that was the effect of Jonathan Edwards' message in the 1700s. So don't tell me they were the fathers of Christian faith in America. They were the robbers of it, many of them. It's being recovered now, thank God. God's justice is not retributive. It's not ultimately retributive, although historically there have been times when it seemed like it. His justice is ultimately transformative. It's even creative. When he transformed Paul, he made Paul into something that wasn't existing before. What existed before was a persecuting, murderous, pseudo-pious, religious fanatic. What existed when God called Paul, better call Paul, said the father to the son. And the son said, I'll go meet him just before he gets to Damascus. At which time we could probably translate his words, hi, I'm Jesus, the one from Nazareth, the one whom you're persecuting. And why, Saul, Saul, are you persecuting me? I mean, isn't it hard on you to do that? To kick against the goads? The end of that conversation was, Lord, what will you have me do? By a man who had been called into existence by the word of God. God does that. You want to call that God's justice? I do. God set things right. Things are terribly wrong with the worst of sinners named Saul of Tarsus, who represents the name Yahweh. So Yahweh says, we'd better call Paul. Call him from where? Call him into existence as the apostle to the Gentiles. Only God can do that. Paul was the right man for the job. But as usual, the man in the arena is usually booed and hissed by those who choose to remain in the peanut gallery. Those who choose to remain in the peanut gallery should stop spitting their shucks at the contestants in the arena. Keep your shucks to yourself. Or just say, ah, shucks, and go home. Don't worry, I wasn't going to swear again. Now, God who requires no cooperation, nevertheless works with humanly rejected material to bring to completion his saving justice. Divine justice is not an attribute of God. The God who is righteous by divine justice sets all things right and requires no cooperation from the creature gone wrong. 
God who is righteous, and by righteous means he is compelled to save as he is empowered to create. He doesn't say, oh, I've got to set that thing down there right, but I've got to enlist the help of those people gone wrong. The people that have gone so wrong they can't fix themselves, I need to have them help me fix them. There goes every self-help book that was ever written right into the trash barrel where it belongs along with the ignition of fire. And there goes a whole lot of Christian books, a whole lot of them. There goes three-quarters of the books on the shelves of Christian bookstores. Poof. Might as well allow that to happen now. Not literally. It's going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ anyways. All the works that we have done are going to be put to the fire, including every message I've ever preached, everything I've ever written. In fact, it's already been put to the fire in many regards, and so I don't have to anticipate that at the judgment seat. I'm being very careful to craft this message properly because I want this understood more than anything I've ever wanted to be understood in the preaching of the word. The creator sees that something has gone wrong. Romans 3.12, he says, he looks out over all the sons of men. That's all humanity, all at once. God is omnipresent. He's present to the future. He sees the human, human race from Adam to its end. He sees the whole human race, and he said they have all together and at once turned aside. Romans 3.23, therefore all sinned when Adam sinned. They keep falling short of the glory of God. The sin of the first representative man has come into the world and passed upon all humankind with death as its inevitable wages. With all of humankind's advances in medicine, they have not been able to cure the problem, which we like to call death. That should be a humbling element. This sin has become a power that came through Adam to all the human race. It has become a power along with death over which humanity has no command or control. Mankind is in the Latin form non posse non pecari. It is not possible for mankind not to sin. Not possible not to sin. Non posse non pecari. It has affected all of creation and infected it. The solution must be provided and enacted and has been by the creator, the God who calls non-existent things into existence, who creates ex nihilo, who raises the dead to life. Do you think he needs help? Did he need your help bringing creation into existence? If he did, then he needs your help in your salvation. But he needs my cooperation. No, he doesn't need your cooperation. Your cooperation is a countermeasure against his grace. The solution must be enacted by the creator and not by the creature. It has to be enacted by the creator without the help of the creature and without the cooperation of the creature. On this topic, Ernst Kosman, the one I'm reading now, the commentary on Romans and Romans in 1980, he said, the God who sets, who acts soteriologically is always the creator out of nothing. The God who acts in a saving way is always the God who creates out of nothing. He always accomplished the resurrection of the dead. He always works with what is human, in human judgment, unserviceable material. He always works with that which is, in human estimation, unserviceable material. Say, what's a good example of that? Well, how about a crucified man on top of a hill in the most brutal cruel form of execution that a brutal, cruel culture could invent. How's, about, how's that? 
Or how about Paul? I can imagine his critics, especially from his back in his old days as a Pharisee. He is an unserviceable person. To that which Cosman said, I would add two things. First, God used the ungodly and irreligious act of crucifixion. You want something that's ungodly and irreligious? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. God used certainly something unserviceable to redemption in the estimation of man, to redeem man. The estimation of man, especially pious man, is way off the mark. Second, in keeping with this same pattern of crucifixion, God works with Saul, also known as Paul, an ungodly persecutor of Jesus and of the community of God, so that through him, the mystery of this so great saving Christological secret would be revealed to all men and women. In Ephesians 3, 9. And so to save all. Do you know 1 Corinthians 9, 22, you'll see it. Paul says, I became all things to all men that I might save. Some, tinas, some. They're better translations, and there's a whole class of Greek ones, including a Syriac peshito, and some of the better Latin translations, but a whole class of Greek translations doesn't have tinas, some. It has pantas, all. I've become all things to all men that I might save all. And that ultimately is not Paul speaking, but Yahweh, who is who he is. And he becomes what he will become. And he will become all things to all men. He will become sin for all mankind in order to save Pontus, all, not some. In 1 Corinthians 9.22, therefore, we've got something there that mirrors the words of 1 Corinthians 1528, when God is all in all. Now, Paul didn't think he was responsible for saving all mankind. But Paul knew that God was going to save all mankind, and he liked being part of it, just like John did in John 1, 6. There was a man who came from God whose name was John. He was sent that all the world would believe through him. It's the same thing. We're all partakers in because we're the ungodly unserviceable material that God uses as the voice and the megaphone for this glorious and wonderful gospel of his son. Don't expect, therefore, if you are the humanly estimated unserviceable material, don't expect a good reputation in this world. The false prophets were praised by everybody in their generation, Jesus said. You can have that. Paul is the supreme illustration of the principle that the saving God will always work with what is, by human judgment, unserviceable material. More than that, Paul was immune to this gospel. He was immune to it. There was no way he would ever consider it in his own will, and believe in Jesus Christ. Because he was immune to the gospel, God invaded his human will, went right into the space of the will that Paul had, which was hardened. That's called unconditional grace. It's an offense to the pious, to the religionists. So offensive that a whole world religion constituting billions of people has rejected the notion with great disgust. But Christianity, which is supposedly based on it, denies it. It wants to entertain. It wants people to feel good about themselves. It wants people to improve themselves. It wants people to develop their character. It wants people to do all these things that have nothing to do with the cross of Christ, and in fact are a blasphemy of it. We always have to be careful of becoming the enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul was warning Christians there. Furthermore, when we despise preachers, 
whom God calls, but who do not fit our pious standard of perfection. We're denying this principle and despising the cross of Christ. We're denying this principle and despising the cross of Christ. And we're sinning against our brother or sister. To sin against a brother or sister in a a way like that is to sin against Christ. We would be like the donkey in the anecdotal adaptation. Richard Wormbrand used this once. He used the adaptation of Jesus Christ coming in on a donkey in the triumphal procession into Jerusalem where the people waved palm branches and said, Hosanna, Yahweh, save, save, Lord, save. And the donkey thought all that praise was for him. What an ass. But that's what we are. We think all that praise is for us. We're, we are serving in order to get the praise, the hosanna, the palm waving at us. I'm happy to report to you that metaphorically speaking, I've had a lot more fingers waved at me than palms. Now, If you're going to choose to be in the peanut gallery, don't spit the shucks on the contestants. As God used the cross of Christ to save the world, listen carefully, as God used the cross of Christ to save the world, so he chose the ungodly to make the glad tidings of this to the world of the nations. And it's curious to say the least. that This same Saul. Said as Paul. I was crucified. With Christ. No cure for me. Except the cross. I was crucified. With Christ. There's no cure for me. Except the cross. Nevertheless I live. And yet curiously I'm finding. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in this body of flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself over to death for me. I don't frustrate the grace of God. God justifies or sets right the ungodly and then works with them as the material through which he's glorified. That's what he's writing about, Paul is, in 1 Corinthians 1, 17 to 31. He does so by the cross of Christ. Now listen carefully. I said this this week. Divine wisdom needs no counselor. Who has known the mind of the Lord to say that he could be his counselor? God's wisdom needs no counselor. And his wisdom is saving. Divine power needs no help. So God helps them that helps themselves also goes into the trash heap with a lot of other humanly good sayings that deny the cross of Christ. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps the helpless. Divine wisdom needs no counsel. Divine power needs no help. Divine grace needs no condition, including your personal faith or mine. Divine love knows no restriction. Divine mercy is salvation in Titus 3, 5, 1 Peter 2, 10. And that mercy God will have upon all in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two, which is where we're going next after 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 11.32. The God who is righteous by divine justice sets all things right and requires no cooperation from the creature gone wrong. Now that just makes sense to me. He requires no cooperation from the creature gone wrong. That's how wrong we've gone. God doesn't need our help. God sees our help as a hindrance. 
You don't know how wrong we've gone. That's the problem. I don't know how wrong we've gone. That's the problem. God knows how wrong we've gone. You know how we can tell God knows how wrong we've gone? Because he sent his son to die. That's how, we, how wrong we were. The death of Jesus on the cross shows how terribly wrong things have gone. And how terribly wrong we have gone. And then we have the audacity to think that God requires our help or cooperation in enacting the divine solution. How arrogant we are. It's amazing to me that he lets us walk around on this planet thinking we're hot stuff. Or worse, thinking we're cool. Which is the goal, apparently, of human beings in this generation. It's not the goal of God. If God's goal was to be cool, if Jesus' goal was to be cool, he wouldn't have been hung naked, stripped, beaten, bleeding, and screaming on a a crucifix. His goal was glory, the Father's glory. Divine justice is not an attribute of God that's standing beside or enumerated with love in a little list of attributes. Justice is God's love in saving action. There's a definition for you. Justice is God's love in saving action. In rectifying action, in justifying the ungodly action. God's solution for what has gone wrong is Jesus. The righteous one. Habakkuk 2.4, Romans 1.17, Acts 22.8 and 14. 1 Peter 3.18, he, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous ones, everybody else, all the human race that have turned aside in order to bring us to God. Bring us to God how? As justified, as rectified, as set straight, as set right, as sanctified, as holy. Because it's God's doing who made Christ to be for us. Wisdom, wisdom that needs no cooperation. Redemption that needs no condition. Righteousness, which is divine deliverance in a person named Jesus. The enactment of that solution is called the cross. The enactment of that solution is called the cross which is the central feature of the Christ event, which begins with the incarnation of the eternal word and his life of vicarious obedience culminates with his resurrection, elevation, and enthronement. God, who requires no cooperation, nevertheless turns around and works with humanly rejected material. Humanly rejected material, raise your hand. (laughs) Okay. Humanly rejected material to bring to completion his saving justice. That is the message of it. God has set the things that have terribly and universally gone wrong by the incarnation, the life of vicarious obedience, fidelity to the extent of death by crucifixion, burial, resurrection, elevation, and enthronement of Jesus, his only eternally begotten son preaching the gospel here. The sevenfold Christ event is salvific in all of its features. It is coetaneous with the coming of faithfulness into the world. The faithfulness that was required to save humanity came into the world when Christ came into the world. Galatians 3.23. It's coetaneous. It's concurrent. It's the same thing. I'm presenting to you as a pastor the vision of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ along with the vision of the universal impact of the cross of Christ called instauration so that you can live in the light of that vision so that 
what's happening right now. I'm preaching the gospel, the word of God in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with much assurance. The only way I can prove that it's with much assurance is if you're actually getting assurance from the Holy Spirit. That's the problem with the preacher. You can never rate our performance, and we can never rate our own performance. We don't know how we're doing until God says, either well done or we've got some fixing to do, and then it'll be all well done. So in closing, as we move to the closing, which is really fourth gear, the alternative to living in the light of this vision by the power of the Spirit is continuation in Adamic ontology, which is called perishing. Proverbs twenty nine eighteen: without a vision, the people are perishing. Those who call the message of the cross folly are perishing. They continue at Adamic ontology, but you know what the worst thing they can do? Go to a bar room, go to a brothel. No, go to church and try to dress up the Adamic ontology and reconfigure it. Baptize it. Make it have food. Make it eat bread and drink wine in a communion service. Make it witness. Make it pray. Make it be pious. Make it be nice. Make it love the poor. Make it give. Make it be giving. Adamic ontology can do all that stuff and still be as fake as human tradition. Or they can do all of that and be in in the power of God, in the spirit of God. There is no Christian living that does not take place in the light of this vision and in the spirit of God. There is no Christian living that occurs outside of the spirit of God who is in us both willing and doing. The enthroned lamb then is the primary symbol of things set right. The enthroned lamb is the primary symbol of things set right. Because a throne, because a lamb is on a throne, you can be sure that God has set things right. And that they will be set right eschatologically and in reality, and they will be actualized as such. Because the lamb who was slaughtered, raised, elevated, and enthroned is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews 9.26 says, Christ appeared once and for all at the culmination of the ages, which agrees with 1 Peter 1.19-20, to put away sin by the offering of himself, to put away sin singular by the offering of himself. What is sin? Sin is the thing that made things go horribly wrong, not only in humanity but in all creation who now has been brought to the point of screaming in groaning labor pains for emancipation from slavery to corruption. In Romans 8, 19 to 30, 23. Look, the baptizer said, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everyone around him saw a man walking a man clad in not-so-fancy clothing, a man walking in a regular pace, a man that did not look like he had a glow or an aura or a halo over his head, a man who looks more like a rabbi, teacher, a man walking who came from Nazareth, which is essentially a ghetto, walking in their midst, just walking by. To everyone else, it's another man out of millions of men that have walked by. But to John the baptizer, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You might be surprised at some of the so-called mundane events of your life that they are not mundane at all. Open your eyes. And some of the despised events like a woman cracking open an alabaster box of ointment and pouring it on the head of this man. What kind of thing is this to do? What a waste this is, said Jesus' disciples. And he said, you better leave her alone. She just prepared me for burial. She just prepared me for one of the seven elements of the Christ event. She's unserviceable material in your view, isn't she? And that act she just committed just 
doesn't sit right with you, does it? You pious punks. He didn't say that. I probably would have. It's a good thing I'm not Jesus, because if I were Jesus, I'd take the right to do all kinds of things to people. I'd call them punks. Jesus was much nicer. He called them a brood of vipers and serpents, because that's what John called them, and John was maligned, so Jesus took John's words and said, I agree with John. You are vipers, not you. Well, there might be one or two. There always is, but one or two of you is a viper, so one or two maybe. Or somebody listening by, you know, the camera there. Maybe one of you is a viper. Maybe you're a viper. I don't know. You could be a brood of snakes. Who warned you to flee? Now then, I said I was closing. I will. I will. Amen. Thank you, Father. We pray that you'll rivet these things home in our hearts. Because justice is hugely a part of the apocalypse. But what your justice does and what it has done is set things right. Father, I for one am grateful that you justify the ungodly because I am one of the ungodly that you have justified. And you continue to justify us and rectify us and set us right in this environment of the church, in this time in which we have such a strange time to live the age that is called an evil age coincides with and sits right next to an age that is called the messianic age, which will culminate when Christ has reigned until all his enemies are placed under his feet. 